Finale of Normandy FM Season 1. I am Eric Van Allen, joined as always by my co-host in crime, Kenneth Shepard. It's fucking over. We made it. It's done. We finished the fight. That's the saying for Mass Effect, right? That's, oh. that's what they always say oh for Mass Effect. Mm. That's <laughs> the, the Master Chief has finished the fight, as they always say. They, they call Shepard the Master Chief because he's just, he, he's a master. And, and and a chief, you know, big chief. You just soiled Commander Shepard's good name. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm really excited to wrap this up. We were going to originally break this episode into two parts because it's kind of a multiple locations thing. But upon playing it, uh, Ilos and the Citadel battle, the battle for the Citadel, I forget what they call it in Mass Effect 2, isn't it? Just the battle of the Citadel. Yeah, because I think so. People in the future are really bad at naming things. Um, they they kind of occur one after the other, and each one is a little bit smaller than, say, your Pharoses or your Novarias. So we figured, yeah, why not? Let's uh, let's smash them together and make a big old finale episode. At the end, we'll we'll talk a little bit about how we feel about Mass Effect One in general. You know, after playing through all this. And we'll uh, maybe get into a little bit of discussion of what's to come. So, if you've been tuning in, thank you. Thank you for being here on this journey with us. It's been one hell of a first season. Uh, We were on time for a total of two podcast episodes. (laughs) Or at least I was on time for a total of two podcast episode recordings. So, (laughs) my New Year's resolution is to not make Kenneth Shepard sit here in Discord waiting on me. (laughs) I mean, it was worth last week. You were, like, well over an hour late that time. Yeah, yeah. And today I, I had good reason. It's because I'm I'm horribly, horribly sick right now. So let's get this thing underway. Before we start, uh, a quick note. If you listen, if you like us, if you're excited for Season 2 like we are, please head over to patreon.com slash normdfm. Uh, we have a Patreon there. helps us take care of hosting costs and, you know, keep this thing running, keep it going. And if we get to certain goals, we'll do a little bit extra. We'll try to do some interviews, some cool DLC coverage, stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, go over, support us. Every little bit helps. It's, it's the season of giving. Make your New Year's resolution to give to Normandy FM. Yep, give me the opportunity to talk about Math Fit Andromeda with one Eric Van Allen. Of course. Yeah, you get to make me play the bad game, the game I don't want to play. Mm. <laughs> Ken, I feel like that's going to eventually be 
all of our podcasts is you just force me to play the games I don't want to play, like Mass Effect Andromeda and Danganronpa Ultra Despair Girls. <laughs> I hey, don't want to play them. I'm just I'm just trying to help you be a little bit more cultured. <laughs> I don't want to be cultured. <laughs> so <sighs> we kind of launch into Ilos here directly out of Vermeer. There isn't really much of a, a breathing point here. Yeah. It um uh, like in the other games, they had, like, a, a very clear point of no return. What sucks so fucking bad about this is there were so many, uh, like, things I still wanted to get done that I can't do because you're basically locked out of the Citadel, like, immediately. Like, I didn't even get to finish Conrad Verner's, like, quest line. What happens to him now? I don't know. I don't, I don't fucking know. You don't care. Shepard's got bigger stuff to deal with than Fair enough. Conrad Verner. Fair enough. You know. But... Yeah, it, it does really, it locks you in, there's very little warning, and when you think about it, it's not like it's, it, it is kind of far into the game, but really Vermeer is accessible pretty early. Right. So compared to the other things like, uh, you know, your Omega-4 relays and your Londons, this is kind of a, it, it feels like a very sudden jump into the end game, and then... Mm-hmm. You're locked into the Citadel. Uh, you got to fly back because you got to tell them what happened on Vermeer, everything that went down. And you get to have a fun little conversation with the council, uh, mm. who are butts again. They are always butts. They are the worst. Uh, and U- Udina, man, fuck Udina, man. Yep. <laughs> he, he really. I have a complicated relationship with Udina mm. because I. I, I've always seen him as a character that, um, the the comic at the beginning of Mass Effect Two actually explained it really well. Uh, he is somebody who will be evil for the greater good. Like mm-hmm. he will intentionally be the fall guy to make sure that things get done and stuff like. That. Maybe not the fall guy, but he will. He will be the unpopular guy. He'll be the politician. Right. But he knows that it's all for the betterment of humanity and and what's coming. And so I kind of liked his character in that way, in that he was always just willing to be that guy. Um, Whereas Anderson was always kind of, you know, he's good, he's he's headstrong and stuff like that. But he's maybe not as ready to uh, be the bad guy in, in a lot of situations. Right. Uh, and this this felt really weird for Udina because he kind of just fucks you over for very little reason, and yeah, and and he doesn't really like explain any of it, and and yeah, it was it was very strange the way they they played out this scene. It's one of the points where like he, he feels like he's groveling for power, and it's like you're just kind of a casualty of that, um, and it makes you like why why would I ever trust this dude again? Like regardless of like what he's done in the past looks like clearly you have a bottom line here i feel like this made me think a lot about mass effect in general and and a lot of the choices that kind of get set up both here and later on in the series where it it feels like they have to start giving you a reason for why you would take one thing over the other Mm -hmm. because you have the bit here that will obviously later play into uh the end of this whole section, uh, the end of the Battle of the Citadel, where you have to choose who's going to take over for humanity, who's going to lead humanity now. And having that choice 
it, it feels like they're kind of setting you up to be like, hey, this is why you shouldn't pick this person, and here's why you should pick this person. It just feels weird that they're kind of like... It's the same thing they did with Vermeer, with Caden and Ashley, where all of a sudden they were like, hey, here's these characters, there's mm-hmm. about to be a choice with them, so start paying attention to them and thinking about the differences between them and stuff like that. Right. And it it just feels very transparent. Um, sure. So, we get locked out of the Normandy, feeling bad, and we gotta go meet up with Anderson, who's who's in the club. <laughs> <laughs> I love... I love meeting Anderson in the club because he's just, like, in his casual civilian clothes for some reason. He's not wearing the uniform that he always wears all the rest of the game. I mean, I guess so, it's, like, a, he's, it's more subtle for him to not be dressed in fucking military blues in the middle of he, a club. It, he, he, like, hardcore reminds me of uh, the, pol- the police chief, I believe, the police captain in brooklyn 99 because he's like this very serious guy but he's trying to kind of blend in and look like your average club goer he's like yes i'm i'm here to partake in the dancing and and the drinking and like it's i i don't this always sticks out to me i, I love it no so. one suspects a thing do you do you ever send anderson to disable security with the patrols no, because why would you send him to a place with heavily armed guards? Yeah, I don't know, man. He's he's a commando. He's got this. It's going to go okay. He's, he's literally in civilian clothes. I actually forgot what happens if you choose that. I I think it works out either way. It actually doesn't matter what you choose here. Is it works either way. I think he just like gets arrested or whatever, yeah. and then and then that just resolves itself when this it all is literally torn in half. So. <laughs> <laughs> He gets a he gets a jailbreak. It's it's allowed. Um, but we get to watch him punch Udina in the face. God, yes, this is the best. He really clocks him. Yeah, like, he got a mean right hook. It's it's power. I, I like that his whole thing is just I don't know. I'll think of something when I get there, and then he he walks in with this intent that is just. You feel like he was hoping that Udina right. was there so he could <laughs> clock him. <laughs> like woo. Um, and then we move into the trip to Ilos where <sighs> it happens. The, uh, the thing that Fox News warned you about, Ken, the, <laughs> God, okay, my, we... my shepherd got it on with an Asari. You see that alien side boob? Saw it. <sighs> boy <laughs> it's this scene is so much because i feel like all the things that we've talked about so far about romance and mass effect can really be summed up in this entire sequence so like the the first major thing is that it takes place before the whole end game run and the the big moments you know it's oh we could all die tomorrow so let's go bang in shepherd's mm-hmm. room and uh in some ways it feels incredibly unearned because you don't really have the natural ramp up of a relationship like right. you kind of have an almost kiss before this happens and and, and then here you have the the consummation but it's well, so first of all, it's incredibly tame. It, right. By modern standards, this is... You could show this on TV with, like, a TV-14 label over it. Like, 
our our standards for for what is acceptable on television and stuff like that are way way above this you you kind of just you see a butt and it's the Mm -hmm. companions you you only see the companions butt and a little bit of like uh side boob going on and they kind of just like dance around each other like i don't know if that's true though if you're in the catering relationship because i think you see shepherds Oh, you see Shepard's butt? Yep. Mm, okay, I got some feelings on that, but... <laughs> uh, better show the female booty. Mm, it, <laughs> literally, exactly sure, what I was thinking. Gotta make sure that's there. Man, I want to see Iron Bull's booty. That's what we talked about. But... <laughs> that's just that's just curiosity, man. I, I maintain that the Iron Bull romance is one of Bioware's best romances. That, I agree. That's solid stuff but we will only get there if you head over to patreon.com slash normandy and fund our dragon age playthrough after we finish mass effect you know i'm gonna plug it man you know fair, it fair. came up naturally uh when we talk about ass <laughs> uh it felt this this the sex scene the the sexy the fact that this is basically like it it also double hit me because Ken and I are both weak-willed men, and we went and played Mass Effect 2 immediately after finishing Mass Effect 1. Uh, it hit me when I went up to Shepard's personal quarters, and there's a little achievements thing in there, and one of the achievements was finish a relationship or, mm-hmm. like, complete a romance, I think is what it was called. And that was the moment where I was like, right, that's how this game thinks of romance still, right. is it's an achievement. It is a thing that happens. It's not not like a social link or anything like that. It's just, uh, did you say the right things? Good. Hear, hear <laughs> sex. Good job. <laughs> and it's also completely like one size fits all. Like It's been a while since I've played through the Mass Effect series uh, originally and uh, through my playthroughs of that, I always played as the male shepherd, but playing through it now as the female shepherd, I'm pretty sure that the animations are exactly the same. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, oh, I have to make note of this too, because I, I did not know if you would see this or not. Um, the music that plays during the sex scene is the same music that plays uh, when you're on the ship after Vermeer and everybody's sad about whoever you left there yep. dying. Yes, it's it the same music. And this isn't, there hasn't been like a very long time gap between those. So they, somebody was like, okay, so uh, we got to use some music for the sex scene. You know, we can't do like that. Like we can't do that. That's a little too on the nose. So, uh, we got something a little bit more like, you know, ambiance, mm-hmm. <laughs> some some atmosphere music. Yeah, we got that piano music. Where else have we used it? Oh, during one of the largest emotional moments in the game. Uh, nobody will notice. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it almost feels like they're... Like there should have been a picture of whoever died in the bedroom. Oh my like, god! Smiling. <laughs> like, <Stop>. Good. <laughs> We're, we're doing this shit. for Caden. <laughs> oh my god. I can't. I can't. I regret starting this podcast. <laughs> That's like all I could think about was like, why is it the same music? Um, oh man. <laughs> so, we. <laughs> you get your shit together. I know. <laughs> we, we get to Ilos 
And uh, so who did you... I feel like the, the choice of who you take here is, is always interesting. So who is your finale squad that you rolled with? Caden Rex, every time. I, I, I chose Garrus and Liara, not only mm-hmm. because that's like my my bro and my girl, but also like uh, it they kind of complement each other well. And also I, I always try to bring Liara on anything that involves Prothean stuff because that's right. like fun, you know. Right. Does she have <sighs> any like additional notable dialogue? So, we will get to that okay. when we talk about a certain character that shows up here, but uh, in general, she does just kind of remark, you know, this is all incredible, I wish we had time to, like, stop and take right. it in and, and right. really see all this stuff, and uh, and, and it's kind of like, you know, she'll say something like that, and then the other uh, crewmate, squadmate, will say, oh, no, we need to keep moving, you know, Saren's the real threat right here, he's who we need to deal with right now. Right. Uh, we we can come back later, uh, and then we're on Isle. Okay, so I love that Joker gets to shine here mm-hmm. because I was really feeling. I you know I was kind of like, man, Joker is just kind of the pilot here. You don't really get to see him shine much, and he literally has one dialogue tree to go down throughout right. most of the game. So uh, you don't get as much stuff with him as you do in the later games. It is like. Uh, just thinking back, like even on the Justice podcast, we haven't talked about Joker like at all. I don't think. at all. And he's not only is he like one of the more prominent characters throughout the series because he is kind of that you know he's Shepard's pilot. That is he, his job. He's, it's, he's it's a what he always does. Yeah, but also he's one of the voices they had to to pay out the big bucks for. I imagine so. <laughs> I don't know how much uh, Seth Green, I believe Seth. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I don't know how much he's worth nowadays. I but think, also, how I much think he was worth eleven years ago? I think he was usurped by Seth Rogen. That's the Seths, <laughs> the the hierarchy of Seths, <laughs> the Seth scene. <laughs> Stop. Um, sorry, I'm on it today. I'm, I'm a little delirious. So that makes me the, much punchier. <laughs> that Benadryl making you feel real good. I I do not take listeners. I do not take Benadryl. I, I I'm against it because why. I get, I get really loopy. Okay, so story time, podcast listeners. Uh, when I was younger, I was on a camping trip with the Boy Scouts. I was at a summer camp to earn merit badges. And in the middle of the night, I got bit on the eyelid by a bug that I apparently have an allergic reaction to because my whole eye swole shut. And so they gave me a bunch of Benadryl. And my next three classes that morning were emergency preparedness rifle shooting no not rifle shooting uh shotgun shooting and archery where luckily we weren't shooting the arrows but we were learning how to make arrows so we used a lot of that really really smelly glue um i legit like blacked out in the middle of the day (laughs) from archery glue and benadryl (laughs) you're supposed to go to sleep after you take benadryl you're supposed to operate weaponry i needed merit badges man I gotta get those achievements. That's what well, Bioware taught me. Clearly, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyway, this so is that's why podcast. I don't. That's why I don't take Benadryl. So, yeah, Joker gets to shine here. I, I like that, and and he gets to do that cool like I can do it. And, you know, they're having that big conversation. You mentioned in your show notes that it was kind of cool having the whole team discussing strategy and stuff like that. It's rare to see that in this game. Yeah, and it was very. 
it was like telling to not see Garrus and Rex there because they are optional. But it was like Caden, Tally, and Liar all up there actually like having this sort of collaborative conversation. I mean, sure, like I don't know. It's I don't even really know that that happened as much in two either. At least not team wide, except for like near the very end. Um, I don't know. It's, it's I feel like they've done a better job of making that kind of sort of dynamic of the Normandy uh, more apparent, specifically in like three and and Andromeda. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think it's more because what I was thinking about it, obviously, because we have started playing Mass Effect 2 already. Uh, there aren't missable characters, necessarily, in the other two games like there are in one. Because I think you're... If I remember correctly, besides DLC characters, uh, who obviously you will get or not get, depending on whether or not they're there, but they're just kind of there. They're just kind of hanging out, whatever. Um, but for the most part, all the dossiers or whatever in Mass Effect 2 and then the, the crew that you get in 3 are all set in stone. You, you don't have the opportunity to lose them, miss them before the big climactic finale of that respective game. So they don't have to play this sort of, oh, well, we need to account for whether or not mm. this person will have this squad mate versus, you know... It, it, it's interesting, and I think that was probably something they, playing Mass Effect 1, they realized and tried to write their way around, or at least come up with a way to not have to do that, because while it is kind of novel that you can go through this game and not see certain scenes, because you didn't recruit certain characters, or, you know, obviously you end up killing certain characters like Rex and stuff like that, the other games kind of lean heavier into better companion writing and stuff, and it's it's better that way that they just know, like, okay, they will always have these characters. They can't right. lose them for some fluke. Uh, then we land on Ilos in our Mako, and Luckily, we don't drive for a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we get a break, thank God. Did you, when you first played this game, did you try to turn the Mako around and, and drive it over? Because that was the first thing I... I, not this time, but when I originally played it, the first thing I did was get in the Mako and turn around and then realize I couldn't. And I had gotten the Mako, like, stuck. Like, that scene in Austin Powers where he's having to, like, constantly reverse and pull forward and reverse and pull forward. No, I mean, I've got some... I got decent depth perception, so I can tell when something's not going to fit. So, no, I did not I did not try to drive the Mako in that very small corridor. I can tell when something's not going to fit. Kind of Shepard, 2018. <laughs> by the time this is published it'll be 2019 so well yeah we're, we're leaving all the double entendres in 2018 don't worry don't worry so Ilos sucks man Ilos is somehow one of the smallest maps in the game yet it I get lost in it so so easily. much of it is dead space there's like nothing yeah. happening in the majority of it not the good kind of dead space like dead space 2 it's it's the bad kind of dead space. Like I literally walked into a corner and was like, "Why does this exist?" Mm. There, there is a level. Okay, so this this super bothered me. Like every time I've played this game, when you go to, uh, so you're going through Ilos, you're fighting. It's kind of a corridor, but there are like different levels and stuff to it, and they don't really matter at all. And then you get to the damaged VI beacon, whatever it is, the message. In that room, there is an upper level to it that has absolutely nothing. It's just there. It is just 
just exists. It doesn't even... I don't know why it exists, because it looks like it should be this sort of observation deck sort of thing, but the windows are in a bad place for it, and also the thing they're observing is a room, so it's... I don't... The level design in later games gets so much better, and and it feels feels weird to say that but i even playing through some of the the missions now it it kind of made me realize like wow there's there's just a lot of like random parts in mass effect one that don't feel like the space is utilized like like maybe they put something there because they thought that something might be there Mm -hmm. and then they cut it and so now there's just kind of a room but they don't want to like mess with everything by trying to take a room out of the game because that could destroy something else i'm not a game developer on and I'm not a level designer, so this is just me as a player going, why is there just an empty room here? <laughs> what the that, fuck is up with the second level? <laughs> right, and the thing that makes it like so much worse is that they do such a bad job of like directing you at all in this level. Because like, yeah. it's got that sort of like same pseudo-open-world philosophy under it, but like there's all this space that goes towards nothing. Um, and it's so, like, very fine. samey, too. Everything yeah, it, looks very samey. There aren't clear land markings that you can use to progress yeah it's a it's a mess it's, it's i don't know luckily also, it's not that long of, like, yeah thank god it's not that long there's a bunch of statues everywhere that i, I don't know what they're supposed to be because they don't look like protheans because <laughs> we later by the grace of mass effect 3 launch dlc see what protheans look like and those aren't protheans so they I don't look know. almost like husks like I don't, yeah but like, like human husks so like that there's no reason for it to be that either like it they just look uh, like that scream painting the, yeah. the one of the guy going Ooh. <laughs> that's that's the noise i picture him making ah <sighs> so we get so you could theoretically not see that prothean message I, I I was realizing that while I was playing the game because I almost walked past and I was like, "Why is there an X above me?" Oh, right, this is where I'm supposed to go into this room and check out that thing. Uh, and and that's where the security console is again. Terrible level design. But <laughs> uh, we finally get back into the Mako and get driving. And oh, the part where you're driving past all the pods and stuff is really cool because I feel like. For all that Ilos is terrible leading up to that point, the part where you're driving past all the pods and kind of realizing that they're stasis pods and, right. and that this is kind of a holdout and stuff like that, that's it's a really cool setting. And then we get the big info dump. Uh, we get trapped in the light by <laughs> Vigil. And uh, he, he gives us the big reveal that uh, the mass relays and the Citadel were all set up by the Reapers to make their reaping super efficient. And to kind of trap every sentient species that comes through. Uh, and I think the big frustration for me still here is that, yet again, we don't know why the Reapers are doing what they're doing. And I was definitely feeling that during this conversation where I was like, okay, so they've got a system. They've done this a bunch of times before. Why? Why are mm. they doing this? Uh, I still had that feeling here. But the... The twist of the Citadel and the Mass Relays being a setup is just... I think it's really good for me because it... You spend a lot of this game being told that, like, oh, humanity is new, they're naive, they're, they don't understand space yet, like like the Turians do, like the Asari do, like the Salarians do. We're, we're so advanced, you're not ready for the Council yet, and stuff like that. 
And for some reason, just getting to Vigil and them being like, oh, yeah, the mass relays are like a trap. You know, it's it's a setup and everybody just kind of takes all the stuff like the keepers and the Citadel and, and the mass relays for granted. Uh, and it works every time. I'm like, ha, see, they're <laughs> dumb as hell, too. <laughs> Humanity. It's an equalizer, I suppose. Exactly. We're all dumb as hell. <laughs> <laughs> that, that being said, I think that Vigil and sort of Eyeless in general is a very, like, it is a better origin story for, I guess, like, the, the the series as a whole, because it really sets the stakes of, like, not just what you as Shepard have to deal with, but it's, like, what the galaxy gets to deal with and, like, the consequences of what this is going to be, because, like you said, all these people, you know, humanity is, like, a quote-unquote younger race, but by the end of this, we're, we could all, all be fucked. Like, it's not going to matter what happened with any of us. All this politics, all this... Uh, all of being the first human specter, all these things that we're supposed to be doing for humanity, none of it matters if we don't all get out of this. It's it's a cool little segment. I didn't spend much time talking to him because I was kind of hitting the point where I'm like, okay, I'm done with this game. I want to move on to the next one. Fair. Uh, but I do remember like the first time I played through it, It was that was just a really cool moment. Maybe not as much as the Sovereign reveal, mm-hmm. um, but it was... I really enjoyed... You know, finding out that the Protheans had, had gone through all this stuff to try and leave something, not necessarily for themselves, but for whoever Forever came next. next. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a cool little thing. Uh, and then we get rolling on, and we got to jump through. So the first time, again, the first time I played this game, I did not immediately realize that what you were supposed to do was drive the Mako into the relay i feel like the build-up to that was super mild because okay you feel like somebody should be like hey we gotta get to that relay maybe the mako can make the jump or something like that but you aren't really given any semblance of an idea that the mako can go through a mass relay uh and i just I, the first time I played this, I would sit there like trying to kill all the the armatures and the colossuses mm-hmm. and stuff like colossi, and uh, not understanding how anyone was supposed to get through this in in like twenty seconds. And finally, I was just like, "Screw it! I'm just driving to it." And that was when I <laughs> figured it out. Uh, I don't think anyone has ever gotten through that thing, actually killing all the geth and then getting through. But probably not. No. Uh, they probably have like infinite spawn on that too, anyway. But it's good that I finally realized that I was supposed to use the Mako to get through the relay because then we get to destroy the Mako. Yes, watch it crash. The first casualty of the Battle of the Citadel is the Mako, and it was universally recognized as the right move. It's a good, it's a good thing to do. Get rid of that Mako, get it out of here. Uh, by the way, one of my favorite parts in all of Mass Effect is that when you go back to the citadel in later games there is a monument to the battle for the citadel and it's the mako it's that no is one shit of my... you didn't know that i i shit maybe i might have at one point but i forgot about it yeah i, I don't remember they do anything special because i didn't remember to look for it when i was playing mass effect 2 last night but um yeah they literally have the mako up as like a monument to the battle for the citadel <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, a great hero gave its life that day. A great machine with terrible handling, you know, made the ultimate sacrifice. Mm. Uh, 
the whole battle for the Citadel thing is is super rad because I feel like this is where the game starts to and the series starts to develop a sense of scale because most right. of the things that you've done up to this point have been kind of low key comparatively you know you've corporate espionage and uh working on colonies and stuff like that but uh here it's a straight up war you know Mm -hmm. there are ships exploding you're dealing with hordes of geth drop ships uh turrets and things like that you really get a sense of you're you are fighting a massive battle and not just kind of a firefight or anything like that Uh, it's really cool i love the i love the setting once you get to the part where you're in the elevator and you kind of shoot out the glass and start walking up the side of the citadel and stuff like that it's that part is so cool uh it it sucks to actually play because this is kind of where i feel some things you realize some things about the the mass effect one engine you specifically noted that hey i can vault over this low-hanging floor stuff yeah and but you have to you have to crouch in front of it first and then get against the wall and then do it because it's like they don't have like the uh manual covered you have this yeah it's i the thing that frustrates me about the battle of citadel is that there are so many encounters in this and the save system like it's like the save system's last chance to fucking get you because <laughs> you <laughs> Because, like, you'll do, like, fight after fight after fight after fight, and by the time that you can save again, it's been maybe, like, 20, 25 minutes. And so what I found myself doing is like, I'd finish a fight, and then I'd, like, walk around the area until it stopped making me sprint. Mm. So I would know that like, I was, like, out of battle state, so I could save. And it got me at least three or so times, because there's this point where, like, you have to get through this, uh like, field of turrets, like, rocket turrets, and... I didn't oh, realize God, it. Yeah. I didn't realize yeah. it until like the third time. But you only have to destroy one of them to get through. But like, if I, I destroyed one and then I try to go destroy the others, and then they just fucking sucker punch me. And they they one shot you. I'm yeah. I'm a soldier in like end game heavy armor, and they would one shot me if I didn't have immunity up. Like yeah. they just destroy you. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah, there are a lot of stat checks in this part that it feels like they're going. Well, okay, you know, we should probably make sure they fight one of every enemy so that way we know that this this person can get through the final thing we have set up for them. So, but if they can't, they're kind of screwed cuz they're locked in here, so it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. I did feel a little bit overpowered because by this point I had I was on the 7/8 range, so I, mm-hmm. I'm actually a little under what I originally finished Mass Effect at just because I when I first played Mass Effect I did a lot of the side quests and things like that, so I wasn't in the 9/10 range. Right. Uh but even then I was like one-shotting uh most enemies with my sniper rifle and mm-hmm. my assault rifle was already the toxic hose that I've come to <laughs> love from mass effect one uh that just sprays toxic rounds without ever overheating uh and most of it felt pretty easy outside the rocket turrets uh yeah, which are I, just bs I, yeah i felt weirdly the same way like i play as vanguard so like i'm in theory supposed to be like the tank of the group and it wasn't really until this point that i felt like i was like able to really rush into fights and just sort of blow everything out of, out of the way um a lot of that probably had to do with, like, just better cooldown so, like, I could use Caden and Rex to, like, 
throw and lift enemies out of my way, and I just immediately shoot them down with my shotgun. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the rocket turrets were the things that really fucked me up. But other than that, well, it was Mr. I always take Caden and Rex, you don't have any tech stuff to disable things with. <laughs> you just have biotics. Caden does. He's Sentinel. He's Sentinel? Mm-hmm. I, th- I always thought he was um, Adept for some reason. Mm-hmm. That's Liara. Oh, okay. Never mind then. Uh, so we get through... We get through the elevator fight. Uh, we get to the the uh, presidium. God, I love that word. That's a good word. Uh, and we fight Saren with our words. And uh, I made a special note here that this straight up feels like a Danganronpa segment because you're basically like believe in hope. You know, don't let don't let sovereign control you, Saren. There's still hope inside you, shining through. Saren <laughs> is hope punk. It's, it's oh, um, um, I, I got to be modern, man. I gotta gotta make the hot references. Well, I played I played Renegade, so um, it wasn't oh God, necessarily that. What are the Renegade was, options? Just like shoot yourself, Saren. <laughs> basically, the, the gist of it is, you're a coward. You should have fought. And there's still a way that you can do that right now. Oh, Jesus. It really is that? Yeah. Oh, God. That's messed up. So how does he, like... Okay, so what exactly is, like, the last thing that you say to him that makes him finally decide to blow his head off? No, in in Paragon, in the Paragon route, so for, for listeners who maybe have not played this part yet, really should have put, like, a content warning on it, but... Uh, we are talking about suicide here. If that's something that affects you, please, you know, take take some time, be aware, um, do do your mental health stuff. Um, it, Paragon, you you're just kind of like, hey, you know, you can still fight it. You and me together, we can work on this. We can be okay. It's it's all going to be okay. You're not. A, a slave to him yet you're not you know completely mindless yet you can still fight him there's still hope in you i believe in you and then he's just like goodbye shepherd <laughs> and pulls the trigger and i'm like what <laughs> and so huh. hearing hearing that renegade is literally telling saren that he's all hope is lost for him and the best thing he can do now is just kill himself that's really fucked up like Holy I don't shit. Know that I don't know that it's that extreme. It's more it's just more like if you're like there are ways for you to still fight this from the position that you're in. And if you're like if you're worried that your body's going to like you're gonna lose control of your body and it's gonna be given up to sovereign, there's one way for you to stop that. <laughs> I don't know Does, if that's better. Maybe but it doesn't like... say it outright, but it heavily implies yeah. It's it's like uh, in the Godfather too when they're when they're telling that guy that there is one way that he can make amends and his family will be taken care of. They don't say it outright, but they're like, "Hey, you know, you, you could do this." Ken, have you seen the Godfather movies? I've seen the first one. Okay, we're gonna. That'll be one of our stretch goals as I sit you down <laughs> and we watch the second. Even though I like the first more, marginally more. That generally seems to be what I. The, the consensus that uh, I know some people like too I, I the things i like about too are mainly like robert de niro's work in it as as young Vito. um i'm not as big a fan of al pacino in that movie but 
this is still a mass effect podcast so sadly we don't get to dwell on that for too long (laughs) so now we kind of get a decision here and uh this is i i think we might have diverged on this as well accidentally i saved the council i i used humanity's powerful fleets that have apparently just been chilling in another thing waiting for us to show up i don't know what the reasoning was behind that they don't really explain that battle plan at all or anything but uh i used humanity's fleet to help save the destiny ascension because a somebody's got to save destiny you know it's just been on a downward slope for years (laughs) and um also because that's a that's a really cool ship and also uh the, the council if i've learned anything from watching movies like the godfather or goodfellas or anything like that a power vacuum creates more problems than solutions so suddenly having no council seems like a bad thing and the last thing we need when we're trying to fight off the reapers is a giant power vacuum at the top of the ladder so I was like, oh, we should probably do the right thing here. But I'm interested to hear what you did, Ken. So I let the council die because, to me, it doesn't seem strategically viable to let a reaper just fucking hang out on the Citadel to save three specific people. Um, Generally in politics and, like, politicians, there there are contingency plans. There are people that are supposed to step in in the event that something happens to somebody else. There's a 25th Amendment (laughs) for for the council. (laughs) There's like you gotta assume that they have something in place in the event that somebody suddenly dies of illness. So being killed by a reaper seems like there's there's gotta be something, something in the works. Um, to me, it's just like Sovereign is like seconds away from taking the Citadel and then bringing the reapers in and just destroying everybody. What is three people's lives to that? Uh, well, so part of this comes from the benefit of hindsight. So when I first played this game, I made the same choice for the same reasons and then now that i have the benefit of hindsight i know that it doesn't change whether or not you kill sovereign it's not like sovereign gets away if you save the council it just means that you get a couple lines of dialogue that are like oh so many human sacrifices were made today uh we will always treasure that really the choice you're making is whether you want to deal with this council or a new council uh I mean, and, it, yeah, yeah. I, well, I just kind of made the choice. I was like, well, I'm probably going to do this because you know I'll, I'll keep these folks around. I've, I've when I played through the series, I actually did both choices, um, and it's really just a cosmetic change more than anything else. Uh, so I was like, ah, whatever, we'll save them. The Destiny Ascension is cool, and you you can like get a model of the ship. I think in Mass Effect Two, if you. Um, if you save it so that's neat but uh for me i'm like i know it's in terms of what's like directly in front of you it is more just like a quote-unquote cosmetic choice where like you have a different council and a different like there are some some ways in mass effect 2 like in tandem with other choices that that can result in different things but to me it's ultimately not really i guess when i and it's kind of goes back to what we're talking about um i think it was a novaria episode where it's like it's not really, to me, about, like, what is the tangible difference in my playthrough. It's more just about, like, the principle of the matter. So, like, even mm-hmm. though I don't see, like, all those humans that survived because they didn't try to save the council, 
I still know that they did survive. I know that, like, we... I didn't lose hundreds or thousands of people to try and save three people. Mr. Uh, Pragmatic over here. <laughs> the next thing I should make you watch is uh, is Fate's Day Night, so you can really think about the <laughs> killing one to save a thousand. I tried to play that game. Wait, but, oh, so you tried to read the visual novel of, yeah. of Fate's Day I, Night. I, have, like, I still have it, but I never got around to finishing it. Hmm. We'll have to talk about that later. <laughs> I yeah. Uh, anyways, this again. We we talk about it a lot. You know, we we have played these games before. We come into it with an understanding. So this is not necessarily a podcast driven by people who are fresh to the game. This is our whole intention is to look back at things that we have already loved and played to kind of analyze them, critique them, understand them a little bit better and in the light of this this modern age that we have because the original game, I think we're coming up on, it was 10 years ago, I think. Uh, one is, it's a, 11 years ago? Wow. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was being generous, but um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there is there are a lot of decisions that end up feeling like, oh yeah, I know how all this plays out. And it feels very flowcharty at times, and that's what the council right. decision felt like. And I'm sure at the time when I made the choice, it felt like a much more impactful decision. But that's kind of what these games become after a while. Because I, at least I know a lot of people that I know play through the Mass Effect series multiple times. You know, they they don't just do one run and done. A lot of people I know have played through this series multiple times to see all the different options and stuff like that. Again, we just talked about visual novels. It's a very visual novel thing um, to do all these different routes and see all these different endings and things like that. Uh, and that's what these these decisions just start to feel more mechanical, and I feel like they do a better job in later games of even making the more mechanical decisions have at least a little bit more impact in the moment than it feels like this council decision does. Uh, so we... <laughs> Once again, Ken chooses the uh, the monstrous choice <laughs> of killing people. Hey, it's not killing people if you're just choosing not to save them. Hey, all I'm saying is your your shepherd is bloodthirsty, man. <laughs> you got <laughs> you got a, a need, you got a thirst, a taste. Uh, speaking of shepherd, still not sated by all the 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 spilling of blood he has done already uh, is like, Hey, go shoot Saren again a couple more times just to make sure that he's really dead. Uh, and then we start the, <sighs> the first time you play this, this is kind of creepy, but now it's almost kind of hilarious. The Saren boss fight, the reanimated Saren boss fight, because the first time he reanimates and apparently one of the things that sovereign did to him was, make him able to reanimate or something like that into a zombie puppet uh and i thought he t-posed when he came back and i was like holy shit did sarah just come back to life and t-pose on me (laughs) asserting his dominance yeah you know he's just he's showing up um (laughs) but then it just kind of turns into this boss fight of Oh, it's like those really annoying enemies that right. I always hated fighting. 
uh and, and he shoots plasma bursts so i guess that's the difference but and he can the, overheat your weapons like yeah indefinitely weirdly the, enough the goofy crab walk that he does and all that it, this was a really silly fight to any observer i imagine because it was three people not taking cover because there's no point in taking cover in this fight because he just bounces around everywhere so you can take in the time it takes to actually get behind cover and command your squad mates to get behind cover he's already bounced around behind you and started shooting right. plasma burst so to an outside observer this looks like three people running circles around a reanimated crab all shooting at each other (laughs) so war was very graceful in the time of mass effect um but yeah this he's just a bullet sponge and they make it even worse by you get him all his shields down he has huge amount of shields uh way more than the the bars imply and then you start working on his health which is even more massive and then once you get him down to half health you get a little cutscene of oh here's what's happening outside and then it pans back and he's full shields again it's Mm. like why why are you making me do this twice he doesn't it it doesn't even feel like the the mechanics of the boss fight ever changed that much he doesn't really have those phases or anything he starts moving faster once you get him down to low enough health but yeah which means creepy as fuck but you know uh, is it I don't. I don't know. I feel like the Rachni were creepier because they weren't these T posing, like half finished Unity model ass enemies. <laughs> like, but it also weren't a reanimated corpse. So I don't know. It's like, I mean, for ugh. a moment I was like, oh, cool, Saren's a husk now, and and that's kind of spooky. But then I was like, ah, oh. again, maybe it's benefit of hindsight, and all I could think of was assuming direct control. It's <laughs> like. Uh, which we're really looking forward to. Uh, mm. If you've ever wanted to assume direct control, may I recommend to you Normandy FM Season 2, <laughs> coming soon. Uh, but yeah, what did you think of this this whole charade? <laughs> whole I don't know, it's, ex- it's extremely, extremely video gamey. Like, it's, it's like we have to make... Because, like, okay, with the charm and intimidate options, you do get to skip one section of this fight, which is basically identical to if you fight him on Vermeer. No, you, ha- yeah. you, have to, you have to fight him oh, on Vermeer. Oh, um, you know one thing we haven't talked about yet that I have to mention? What? They never address that Saren's got this kick-ass hoverboard. Like He does. And nobody else in the entire series has a kick-ass hoverboard, but Saren has a kick-ass hoverboard. And I'm really mad that we never get... I thought it was like a Spectre thing or something, but apparently we just never get a kick-ass hoverboard. Saren was the only person with that technology. Like maybe it's the Reaper it. thing? Yeah, maybe the Reapers gifted him the kick-ass hoverboard. And and by killing Sovereign, we lost the secrets forever. <laughs> I mean, I would I would sell my soul to the Reapers for a kick-ass hoverboard. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't? Oh, but you were saying. Okay, so, like, you do get to skip that one thing with, like, but, like, why... If, okay, if, like, the, the sort of, like, the morality, the Paragon Renegade is sort of central to the way this game plays... It almost feels like you should be able to sort of circumvent this fight as well if you do kill him. Like, maybe just, I don't know. Maybe, and But again, it's like, it's so video gamey. It feels like it's very tacked on at the end because, like, we need a final boss fight, so here you go. Hey, you, Which, you I mean, gotta fight Saren. You know, it's, it's gotta happen. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, a very similar thing happens in Mass Effect 2, 
but doesn't happen in Mass Effect 3, which is why one of the reasons that I really respect the way that the ending of Mass Effect 3 goes with, I guess, sort of like the Saren equivalent character in that one. Um, oh, what are you talking know. about? There totally is a final boss. It's that Star Child asshole. And you gotta gonna... shoot him to get the best ending. <laughs> I'm gonna delete that from this fucking show, so no one have to do it. Um, I don't know. It's just like, I... It's... Like, the, the fight's not hard, it's just time-consuming, and it just feels very tacked on. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just kind of a weird note to end the game on. Or, or at least the last, you know, bit of gameplay that you do. It, it's a weird note. If only uh, if only when they shot Saren, they had chopped him up into small pieces and dissolved him into an acid or something like that. These guys just been, like, never... real thorough. Yeah, they've never committed crime before, you know? These are all, like, very goody-two-shoes military guys. And you gotta look. You gotta cover that whole thing up. You gotta make it look like Saren, you know, you can't have that looking bad on you. <laughs> Be like, oh, look, clumsy Saren tripped over his kick-ass hoverboard and <laughs> fell and cut himself into a million little pieces and fell into a pool of acid. <laughs> clumsy Saren. <laughs> like, uh, I like these podcasts that we do, Ken. <laughs> so we get through the battle for the citadel and uh now we've got control we have assumed direct control of (laughs) the entire citadel uh we have killed saren twice uh once with words and then with bullets when words didn't work and uh now sovereign gets to fall and once again joker gets to shine and uh all that is cool and awesome, but then we think Shepard dies because there's somebody out there in the audience who thought like, "Oh my God, they killed Shepard." <laughs> um, but the cool thing about this, the the very end of that, where you have that moment where they're like, "Oh, you know, he's oh, where's Shepard?" and and one of your squad mates. For me, it was the R. Kind of glances over, is like, "Oh, you know," and, and they're like, "Oh, yeah, it was oh. Kaden for me." Um. <laughs> And then Shepard comes running out triumphantly with the music swelling and stuff. The first thing I thought was, this is a scene that would play in an MCU movie, like hundred percent. This is the That's kind of fair. this is the kind of cheese we're on right now. Um, and it it is kind of that moment, like I mentioned earlier. This is where the scale of the series kind of steps up a little bit. It's that moment where you're like, okay, that's when Shepard becomes the Shepard that I. No, like the the right. hero, the savior of the the galaxy, and all that kind the of. The origin stuff. story is over. Yeah, is that is the end of the origin story, and it, it it almost just feels like a completely different character at that point. So as cheesy as all of it is, it totally works too. It's really good. I like it. Yeah, and thank God. They and then he comes out with the... that grin, and he's got like yeah, totally just fucked up a reaper. Uh huh. Yeah. Hell yeah. They all kind of give the the knowing smile, like, oh, <laughs> Shepard, you had us fooled for a minute, but nothing can kill you, right? There's no way that some massive invasion of Reapers and a trilogy would end with you dying, right? That's impossible. No one would ever write that. <laughs> oh, we're getting we're getting so close to season three, and that's why I'm doing this to you, because I'm just, I'm ramping it up. I'm getting there. <laughs> mm. uh so then we get to uh choose a candidate because uh the council whoever they might be dead or alive 
uh, decides that it's time for humans. So did you have the conversation where they're like, oh, well, humanity gets to be part of the council now? Uh, the way that it's framed, if you let the council die, is Udina is like, this is our chance to usurp power from everybody else. And so, like, I'm over Good here, old like, Udina. The, like, literally, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about, my dude? Like, th- okay, like, you want to see it on the council, fine, yeah, we probably earn that. But, like I said, there are contingency plans. There are, like, people that take the spot when somebody else dies. What are you talking about? Dude, I told you, I told you, power vacuum, man. That's what happens. That's how this goes down, and Udina plays the game. He plays it better than anybody else, and that's why I chose him as my counselor. Because Udina plays the game. But but you chose somebody a little bit more respectable. Somebody who would not cut up Saren's body into little pieces and throw it in the fat of acid. Right. I chose Anderson because, to me, like... I've, Udina has already shown me I clearly can't trust the bitch, so... With Anderson, at least I know I've got somebody on my side, somebody that I can, like, reasonably trust in charge. Um, and, I mean, just because of the way these games play out, I don't know that that really matters much, but it, um... I don't know, like, it's like, why would I ever trust Udina in power after what he's already done? I get that. Um, again, power of hindsight compels me a little bit here, but um, I think even in just within this playthrough in a vacuum that uh i would want anderson at the helm of the fleets you know alongside hackett and uh udina has always been the politics guy and he's good at it you know hate hate the game can't hate the player that's that's what the saying is (laughs) Um, or you hate both or you hate it all but um he he really seemed like the right choice just because he knows all these people. He knows how to get around the Citadel. He knows all the, the back channels and the secret meetings and stuff like that. He's on the ball with that stuff. Whereas Anderson is trustworthy, but he's also kind of a doof in those <laughs> regards. Like, he he doesn't know how to do that stuff. He's shown that multiple times over. And, and look, his blending in at Flux just was not working. He, he, he was not blending. <laughs> his club shirt was not doing it <laughs> his one club shirt uh, so yeah i went with udina because i felt like that was right and then that's like the oddly enough that's kind of the last thing that happens and then anderson steps in and gives a little monologue about like well the reapers are coming and we'll take the fight to them and we're not gonna give up and then it kind of ends on this weird thing of okay here's a portrait of your shepherd over space I, I always thought that one final image was so strange even now like there's like hey in case you forgot who the protagonist of this game was <laughs> commander shepherd with epic music and, like, and they also have like the backdrop is a certain color depending on your morality so, like, oh it was, like a red planet for me oh i don't remember i think mine might have been a blue planet because i was max paragon but yeah uh yeah, I never actually knew that part, but I always thought that was just kind of a strange little thing there. It is. And then the normally like, flies into And the, yeah. I almost expected to be like, see you in the next game. <laughs> right. <laughs> really cheesy end to it. So, credits roll. We're all done. Mass Effect 1, it's finished. We are done. Season 1 is done. 
Ken, just give me your your overall thoughts on on Mass Effect One. Let's let's really just wrap this up with a neat little bow here. It sucks and I hate it. Oh, spicy! No, it sucks and I love it. There you go. <laughs> um, I think my biggest takeaway playing this game, and this is flavored a little bit by the fact that literally. After I finished this game, I immediately installed Mass Effect 2 and booted that up. Um, it, it is a product of its time. And, yeah, and, a, and of Bioware, I feel like it was the last Bioware-y game of that era. Where they tried to do the things that they have always done. Uh, you know, they're very early games like... Um, see, I should have had a Wikipedia page open or something. Uh, Baldur's Gate and things like that. Um, where they're still kind of trying to make the the RPGs the and when mm-hmm. I say RPGs I mean RPGs not in the way that it is nowadays where it's kind of a catch all but right. like an RPG ass RPG uh, and there are things that I still like about this game I still love Novaria uh, I still love just meeting all these characters and also like the the squad from this game is so so they are the core of mass effect to come they are right what this series becomes and it, it's so great getting to see like oh it's tally and garris and liara and rex and all these characters and ashley but <laughs> it's um <laughs> yeah it's really cool to to see all that again and and to feel those feelings but i don't feel like nostalgia carries this game like it does for the others i don't feel like those rosy feelings go far enough and Mm -hmm. a lot of mass effect one was me going like oh right this is how this works so oh right they do it this way yeah like nostalgia can only carry you so far if like just the fundamental plane of the game is busted by today's standard yeah um like i just think it's like as a foundational thing like the importance of this game cannot be overstated and it's not just for mass effect it's for just like the way that choice and um basically like the idea of consequence of your choices carries out in most of the games like telltale probably wouldn't have happened the way it did had it not i mean okay that not the way that it ended up but like the the games that it made um <laughs> probably wouldn't have ended up uh the way they were without this um yeah it it's it's a standard for consequence and choice in a way that probably nothing had ever done before it's interesting you mentioned that just recently uh there's a steam sale and one of the games i picked up because i was kind of in the mood for going back and reflecting on these games that were very pivotal in their moment uh i finally played through fahrenheit indigo prophecy which was one of david cage's earlier games uh before heavy rain before all that uh and that game is hot garbage that game is i believe it possibly one of the worst video games i've ever played and i literally could not believe that it was ever lauded by anybody and (laughs) i talked to friend of the show david roberts uh and he had played the game at launch and it's bizarre because he was saying yeah no that game sucks but at the time nobody else was really doing this sort of thing so it kind of got a free pass from a lot of people because it was just doing stuff that nobody else had done and i don't think that's the same for mass effect one i think that's the key difference is that the story of the game does hold up unlike fahrenheit indigo prophecy which is hot garbage uh the story of this game is still really good 
it's it's basically a Star Trek video game. You know, you just kind of move mm-hmm. some pieces around and you're basically playing Star Trek. Uh, but it works in that regard. And it it's very rosy. It's very MCU. It's very Hollywood blockbuster style compared to what is to come. But I really appreciate it for what it is. And again, like, I can't overstate the characters enough. It's... Right. This cast is so good. And even the conversations now that I have the benefit of having just recently played Mass Effect 2, seeing how they changed a lot of that stuff, even the conversations in that game are better. Just the way that they animate and the way that they uh, talk and and exchange and, and discuss things and the pacing, but... This this game is still definitely like a thing that if you have not played it and you really want to see like what you said, Ken, it has become a milestone in gaming. Uh, Mass Effect One for sure, certainly the rest of the series. Uh, it's still worth playing now. It's still worth seeing this stuff. So it's it's cool to go back. But again, there there were problems. Not, I wouldn't even just say in the playing, but some of the story, like Pharos, feels completely tacked on. Like they need to right. add another mission, and the we've talked over and over again about romance and specifically how that was handled. Um, the fact that in Mass Effect One, there is literally there are literally three people that you can romance, and it's <laughs> it is a straight romance, a straight romance. And the bisexual alien catch-all. So, those are your options. And bisexual... And that doesn't really get better into. Yeah, and, and, and of course the bisexual alien catch-all is female-coded, I would say. The, the, the sorry are kind of tricky to peg down in that way, but... Um, she is the, the sexy blue alien girl from Star Trek, and that's... Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that maybe doesn't get better as the games go on. It might take a while for Bioware to get that one down, but um, there are definitely still issues that are maybe more apparent in the light of 2018-2019, and, and especially with the later stuff that Bioware has done that has made greater strides in that area. But overall, you know, Mass Effect 1, it does... I did have a little warm feeling in my heart when, when I finished it, because I was like, oh, yeah, this was a good game. Now I get to play Mass Effect 2. <laughs> oh, yeah, boy. I, I shouldn't have started playing it. Because, like, now we... Now I gotta wait. Because I've got all these notes. Wait, you gotta wait. I... I... Yeah, I'm probably gonna play through the whole damn thing. <laughs> so... <laughs> we, we were talking before the podcast started, but both of us immediately started Mass Effect 2 after finishing Mass Effect 1. In case you were wondering how obsessed with this game we are. Um... And we won't cannibalize our own content to come. Uh, there will be a season two of Norm DFM. We will be talking about Mass Effect 2. We do have guests lined up. We have some cool stuff in the works. Uh, and overall, I, I'm really excited to get into Mass Effect 2 because not only is it one of my favorite games of all time, like literally just it is up there and even playing through it now i'm feeling a lot of the same feelings i had back then uh but it is a game uh, that has a lot more to say i think than than one does i think the main takeaway i had from just playing the opening parts of mass effect 2 was that 
there's a lot less uh let's say dead space like we were talking about earlier right. um there's a lot less dead air of just running around and trying to figure out what's going on and oh, okay my objective's over here i'll go over here and do yeah, do this quite fetch quest but also they just they get set pieces down the way that game opens is infamous i would say and uh it it just keeps going from there uh so we'll have a lot of things to talk about there are a lot of interesting characters that we're going to meet a lot of fun and some really bad ones oh boy well we're going to have some people on to defend them i believe so uh, i'm really looking forward to some of those episodes uh but we got stuff in the works we're also looking into other fun stuff that we can do that aren't maybe specifically episodes about uh the games themselves but uh potentially some other stuff that would just be us talking with knowledgeable people about how the the game got made and how the series got made and looking back on it there so we're working on that stuff but overall if you like us if you love us stay tuned we'll have more to come uh, hard details and dates and stuff in the future for now thank you for tuning in thanks for flying with us it's been wonderful ken how do you, you happy are you happy with season one? Absolutely. Like I, I was thinking today, holy shit, I convinced somebody to make a Mass Effect podcast with me. And we're a third of the way through. You, you talked me into it, mostly because you were <laughs> like, hey, if you do this, you get to play Mass Effect again. And I was like, well, that's a good sales pitch. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, for Kenneth Shepard, I'm Eric Van Allen. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Normal Oh, my dear,